0: Welcome. I'm Warren Odessjilet, and this is a Baha'i perspective. <music> Welcome to a Baha'i perspective. I recorded an interview with Mavash Kajavi Harvey on December fourteenth, 2020. Mavash is author of the memoir, Daylight Forever. It's a story of a young Iranian Baha'i herself who escapes persecution and wants to emigrate to the United States. It's a gripping, heart-wrenching story that she shares in the interview. I started the interview by asking Mavash where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up.
1: I grew up in Tehran, Iran. I often say I grew up at the wrong time. When I was a six-year-old child, the Islamic revolution of 1979 took shape in Iran, and that completely threw off the normal way of life for members of the Baha'i faith. My family and I are Baha'is, and I grew up with the Baha'i faith and unfortunately after the revolution bahai's religion was not accepted in iran in fact bahai's were persecuted so we were not allowed to hold any religious meetings or gatherings were all forbidden children bahai children classes were forbidden we would just pray in our own house but we were directed to put away all of our holy books, and we had to sort of go undercover and hide our identity because the Baha'is, everyone who was Baha'i, their life was endangered. Unfortunately, I wish I could say that happened 40 years ago, but unfortunately, still happening. Baha'is have no legal right in Iran. As of as recent as just Three weeks ago, the government broke into 50 Baha'i homes around Iran and they confiscated their computers and their laptops, their cell phones, anything electronics that they had. There are still several dozen Baha'is in prison across Iran who have long-term sentences without being given any legal rights. To a lawyer or defending themselves and just because of their religion they are sentenced to life in prison or long sentences and they have been persecuted and killed throughout the last 40 years
0: how old were you when the iranian revolution occurred or were you born after the revolution
1: no i was six years old six years uh, old when the revolution took shape i do remember the chaos in Tehran and the protests. And sometimes we would go to the city center for, you know, I would go with my parents to go to a doctor's appointment or shopping. And, you know, we would see large masses of people in the street and my, my parents would grab my hands and get out of there. But I remember the neighbors changing and the neighbors turning on us. And, you know, these were neighbors who had lived in the neighborhood for over 20 years alongside my parents they had very close relationship with my family and my dad was the only person at the time who had a car my dad would take other families kids to the hospital you know or if their wives were having babies in the middle of the night my dad would be taking them to the hospital my dad worked for the water company At the time, they only had a well in the neighborhood we lived. And so my dad would bring clean tankers of water for the school in the neighborhood and for the neighbors. And yet after the revolution, they would write graffitis on our walls that we were dirty. And they would ask that we have to leave so they could cleanse the neighborhood. And one night they actually threatened to burn our house down, and we had to just leave at once.
0: How long, Mavash, did you or family endure this before you realized that you had to leave?
1: Well, you know, the protests started probably about a year prior to the revolution, and it kept getting bigger, and we all felt like it's, or my parents felt like, it wasn't going to happen, and it kept getting bigger and larger. And eventually, the Shah of Iran left. When the Islamic Republic formed in 1979, then it was endorsed by Ayatollah Khomeini that the Baha'is need to be basically removed from the society. That's when the, the neighbors started to turn. First, it was ignoring us, ignoring my parents. The kids stopped playing with my sister and I. And then it got worse with time. So it was probably about a year and a half. So apparently there was a gathering at the mosque, at the local mosque, and the local clergy told the neighbors that it is time to cleanse the neighborhood one neighbor stood up and said that he was not going to allow that to happen. And he reminded them of the things my parents had done for the neighbors. He said, no, that's not acceptable. So he said they can only do that over his dead body. So he ran over to our house and told my dad that you need to get your family out tonight. I'm going to stand guard at your house until you pack what you need and go. And that's what we did.
0: Oh, my God. God bless that person, that man. Yes. And do you know whatever happened to him? Were there any ramifications of him?
1: No, he he was a a well-loved, kind person. He actually ran the local grocery store in the neighborhood. You know, years later, my parents got in touch with him, and he still apologized for the behavior of the other neighbors. But my dad always got up very early in the morning and would make breakfast for everyone and go to the bakery and get bread. And he said he realized every morning when he left the house, the walls were all wet and he couldn't figure out why, because it hadn't rained. And this gentleman told him that he was so embarrassed by the graffiti that they would write all night on our walls, Um. that he would get up before my dad was up and would wash away the graffiti and that's why the walls were wet.
0: Do you remember the escape from Iran? From oh, your house?
1: Very well. From our house in the neighborhood, not from Iran.
0: Okay, well I guess it was a s- several phases in this yes. adve- treacherous <laughs> adventure. So let's yes. start with escaping from your house.
1: Okay. So yeah, I mean we we just basically packed up the necessities and went and stayed with relatives until my parents could find an apartment literally across from Tehran on the other side in a more affluent neighborhood. The neighbors were very happy to help with selling our house quickly. They were happy that we had left, and so they, they helped with finding someone who would fit in better in the neighborhood. So they bought our house and we were able to, my parents were able to buy a house in another neighborhood.
0: Was your father's job in jeopardy during this time?
1: Yes, so basically Baha'is lost all the legal rights post-revolution, which included getting fired from their jobs. My father worked for the water company close to 30 years. He was fired from his job. So they were all fired with no pension they took away the Baha'is pensions. They froze their bank account and seized their properties. All the university students were dismissed so Baha'is had no right to higher education. And actually in most cities and towns besides Tehran, Baha'i students were not allowed even in high school or junior high. There was Nothing left for the Baha'is. My parent, my dad, had to just buy a truck, and you know, he would go every day and try and find a job, whether people wanted to move junk or move from their home, or you know, just try and make the ends meet.
0: Right. And how long did he, he and your family endure that situation?
1: For ten years.
0: That's quite a long time to yes. endure that. What was the final? impetus that said, I gotta leave.
1: What happened is actually, unfortunately, besides the persecution of the Baha'is, we had another added trauma, which started two years post-revolution, and that was the war between Iran and Iraq. And that went on for nearly eight years. So when we moved across, the new house was very close to the airport where we ended up living. Because of the proximity to the airport, there was a lot of bombing going on. They were trying to bomb the capital. You know, getting comfortable with, you know, the restrictions that we had and the minimal privileges that we had, the war just kind of topped it off. And so the repeated bombing was so traumatic for a child for anyone but for me as a child i was eight years old i was in second grade when the war started and i clearly remember the first day of the war i was playing with my sister in the room and the windows started shaking and they started cracking and the pictures falling off the shelves and it was end of summer my mom was napping and she yelled at us why are we making so much noise and we didn't know i mean we we kind of were confused of what is going on and she woke up and we all ran to the streets and there was just flames and the sky was dark from, you know, and people were pointing to the planes and it was literally the first day of the war. And so they bombed Tehran's airport. And then from there on, eight years, there was a lot of stretches of time when we were living with bombing. When it got dark in Tehran, they would cut the electricity across the city because uh, they didn't want the fighter jets identify where people were living because they would just sometimes randomly bomb. You know, they were trying to get the radio stations or the electrical grids, but they would just sometimes would land in, you know, and they had landed in a hospital and had landed in a wedding, you know, killing everybody. Everyone had taped the windows and we would, everyone was was instructed to, hang blankets, thick blankets on the windows from the shattering shards of the glass. And so my sister and I would do our homework with candle lights. We would eat inside with candlelight when outside was just dark and quiet. And then when we would hear the sirens go off, it was so scary. you know I, I felt like I couldn't breathe. We would put our shoes our shoes and jackets on and we would go sit by the door. And my dad, God bless him, a lot of people went to the bomb shelters and my dad would never want to. He would always say, You can't escape your destiny. You can't just there's no point in going. And I think maybe partly is in the bomb shelters. Was kind of uncomfortable maybe for him to be in that situation. So we would stay home, just kind of clinging to each other until the bombs drop and the ground stopped shaking. My body would go numb and then we would try and go to sleep and get up in the morning and go to school as if it hadn't happened.
0: And so this was enough that your father said enough is enough with the bombing?
1: Well, the bombing got really bad at the end because I think they were trying to put pressure on the government of Iran you know there would be breaks and then there would be stretches of bombing and it got so bad in early months of 1988 that they eventually closed all the schools and they said that they could not take responsibility for the children anymore at school the bombing was bad and there was no future for me even though I was a good student, straight A, there was no future for me in Iran. I was a Baha'i girl and I couldn't go to university and women didn't have much right anyways. So I was pressuring my parents that I wanted to leave and my parents were reluctant because they had slowly sold all of their belongings to cover our cost of living of whatever they could. My mom's jewelry or the Persian rugs or they had a piece of land. And so what we had left was my dad's truck that he was earning some money from working and the house that we lived in and no one was buying a house that was getting bombed every day. My parents said that they couldn't afford for us to leave But my mental well-being was so bad that I could not sleep anymore. And then if I fell asleep, I would just be screaming about the bombs. And it got to a point that my parents were worried about how I would go on with all that trauma. I kept asking them, so they sat me down one day and they said that they had found out that there were a group of people who they trusted were leaving. And they would let me go with them. And I thought I misunderstood. And I said, so we're all going. And they said, no, you will be going. And in one hand, I was excited. And the other hand, I was so scared. I wasn't sure what I was hearing. I was 15 years old. So I asked them, and I said, we can't afford to all leave. Are we going to leave? And they said, no. We're going to sell the truck, and, and you are going to leave. And they asked me what I thought, and I didn't want to say no, because life was, there, there was no life. It was so traumatic. I mean, there was no options. So I didn't want to let them know that I was scared. And because I was worried they might change their mind. And I said I was up for it. So then they made the arrangements. They sold the truck. They got information from the smuggler who was going to smuggle us across, from, uh, across the border from Iran to Pakistan. I mean, we couldn't meet the smuggler. We came to find out that there was a large group of them probably along the way. I met 10 to 15 different men who we were handed off to sometimes from a few hours sometimes every day so the instruction was pack a backpack of what you can carry and run with and walk for long periods of time with and that's all and so my mom and i got a backpack i looked around my room and i was like okay what am I going to take and it took me hours looking at the pictures the shoes the books the clothes and my mom finally came over and was like okay we're going to take a couple underwears couple socks your pajamas your toothbrush some medicine some pain medication some feminine hygiene product a comb and that's it This is all a backpack is. No pictures? A couple pictures, a prayer book, you know, the basic necessities. And that was it. That's what I took on my back. The plan was to fly from Tehran to the border city of Zahedan, And then from there, I took the backpack and I walked away and never looked back. I had no idea what I was going to be facing, but I told myself that I had to risk. There there was no life with the war and the persecution. There was no opportunity or future for a Baha'i woman in Iran. And that was what gave me strength, that I was not welcomed and I was not wanted in my home country. And that's what kept me going, that I was going to go somewhere where I was welcomed, where I felt safe where I could practice my religion, where there was no bombs dropping, where I could wear what I want to wear, I don't have to cover my hair, where I could go to school and get educated and have a career that I want and be a part of society and be respected.
0: So how long of a trek was it once you landed on the border town to get across the border? And what was it like crossing the border?
1: Well, it took, until we were safe, it took about two weeks. So we had to be sometimes hidden in the safe houses. Sometimes it was the matter of waiting for hours, sometimes a day or two, until the connections were in place and the people who were going to, the guards who were going to look the other way or they were on a break or whatever. Most of the times, driving at nighttime and hiding during the day. Sometimes it was walking, and eventually we got to the city of Quetta in Pakistan, where we could reach United Nations.
0: And how long did you have to wait in Pakistan be- before you could find a host country?
1: I was very lucky that I was in Pakistan only about for about three and a half months, and the reason for that was because when the... United Nation representative realized that I was 15 years old, female, and without a family. She, she just fell off her chair. She, she mm-hmm. said, this is, this is not right. You cannot be your minor. And we have to speed this process up to get you somewhere safe where the family is. Now, my brothers had left in right before the revolution in 1978. So my brothers were already in the United States. So the final destination was United States, but I had no documents. And United Nations had to verify my identity. I had When I went there, they asked me if I had driver's license, and I didn't. I was underage. They asked me if I had high school diploma, which I didn't because I hadn't finished high school. I basically had no legal paper with a picture on it. And so they had to verify my identity and they had to get confirmation that, in fact, my story was true, that I was Baha'i and I was coming from a Baha'i family. And then they were able to help me get travel documents to move me to Vienna, Austria, where they felt like it was much safer and there was a better setup for a minor. So I I was in Pakistan for that long to get my documents in place.
0: I'm speaking with Mavash Kajabi Harvey author of the memoir Daylight Forever. It's a story of a young Iranian Baha'i herself who escapes persecution and war to emigrate to the United States. And we were just talking about her traumatic life in Iran as a Baha'i and her escape to Pakistan as a 15-year-old. Once you arrived in the US, I assumed you were still 15 or 16 when you arrived in the US. What were the first challenges that faced you once you arrived at the United States?
1: So I was almost 17. I ended up being in Vienna for about a year, waiting for my asylum to be accepted by the United Nations and by U.S. And then when I arrived in U.S., I landed in California. Obviously, along the way, when I was in Vienna, I studied English and German just because There was nothing else to do. But still, language was a barrier, the culture, the financial needs. My parents had no money to help me. They were still in Iran, and they were trying to leave. I was a teenager, fitting in, trying to learn the new culture, the new way of life, and adjusting to still the trauma of the past and coping. And realizing and embracing freedom and safety, it was very confusing. It took a long while for the nightmares to go away. And learning, learning about this new place that I had dreamed of to live in.
0: Whatever happened to your parents?
2: They
1: had to wait until the war ended, and they were able to sell our house that we lived. So eventually they came in 1989 to u.s
0: and did they have to escape also in the same manner that you did
1: yes but they didn't have to wait as long because my brothers were u.s citizen by then and they were able to apply for residency for the parents but they could not do that for the siblings and that's why i had to wait for my asylum but my parents the fact that their sons were US citizens that helped speed the process up so they didn't have to wait a long time and they were able to come to US fairly quickly.
0: When did you decide to write your memoir and what inspired you to do that?
1: It's actually all in the book. So it was a couple of months after the election of 2016. My older daughter, Parisa was at school and in a Spanish class and they were learning Spanish and a child started talking about why do we have to learn Spanish? And there are too many immigrants in this country and President Trump was going to take care of them and was going to deport the immigrants. So my daughter Parisa stood up and said, why would you say that about the immigrants? Do you know their stories and their struggles? And he said no, and he didn't care. And my daughter said, well, my mother is an immigrant. My grandparents are. My whole side of family is, and a lot of our friends are. You shouldn't say that. And the kid said to my daughter, does your mom have paperwork, or is she going to get deported? She was in seventh grade, 12 years old. So when I picked her up from the bus stop, she was crying. She was crying all day. The teachers called me and let me know. And she said, when I picked her up, she said, Mom, you should write a book and you should share your story. She said she was upset because she felt like I was disrespected. She said, I know what your life was like, and I know how hard you have worked to put yourself through school and have a job and you work hard and you contribute. And she felt like I was being disrespected and she felt like the immigrants are being disrespected. And so she said, if you write a book and you share your story, it might help people who don't know other immigrants or refugees closely. And maybe if they knew people's stories and struggles, maybe they won't be so judgmental. Maybe they will have an open mind or an open heart. And so I was trying to calm her down, and I said, sure, yes. And then we revisited that a week later, and and I was like, my story is not that unique. There are millions and millions of refugees around the world. Some have it worse, at least mine, I feel like I'm very fortunate and blessed that my story was a success story. I have a very safe and comfortable life right now. Mm -hmm. But she insisted and so I started writing. So I kept working on it and it took three years and it became a book called Daylight Forever.
0: How did the title Daylight Forever come about?
2: The
1: reason that I call that is that when I was a kid and I was lying down on the floor at night time, you know, on my mattress. For some reason, they bombed Tehran at night many, many times. The nights became very scary for me. I couldn't sleep. I was always waiting. I was staring at the ceiling feeling like it's going to fall down any minute. And so I had a hard time sleeping and I would hear the sirens and the tears roll down my face and my body goes numb and I couldn't breathe. And as a child, I would think to myself, if I had a shuttle that I could crawl into and travel to the other side of the world when it gets dark here, then I would be safe and I can escape these spooky nights. And then I can come back to Iran in the morning to go to school. So my life would be in a daylight forever. And that's why I named that daylight forever, because that was my dream. And every night I would think about that.
0: I imagine you've never done such a project before, writing a memoir, especially in a a language that's not native to your...
1: That's right. I have never written any publication, well, some for school, but not the book Mm -hmm. in English.
0: What were some of the challenges in writing this memoir for you, not only technically, but just maybe even emotionally?
1: Yes, I think emotionally, in some ways it took a toll, in some ways It was therapeutic and it freed me in some ways because when I came to the States, I had a dream and I had a goal. I was going to go to school and I was going to get higher education and I was going to change my life and I was going to live a different life. And so I stopped talking about my past. I just put them all in a closet and I locked up that closet and I never talked about it. I didn't talk about it with my friends. And actually, I think one of my classmates from dental school has read the book. They don't think I am the same person because I never talked about all the things that happened. It was so painful and it was so traumatic that i rather not think about it and talk about it. But once in a while, something would trigger it. You know, something would bring it back. And that PTSD would... It would take energy and effort to put it back to sleep. So reliving the moments, remembering the details, the sadness, the fear, the hardship, the horror of the bombs, the terror of the persecutions, the rationing of the food, all of that plus the pressures of society of covering up and wearing the certain uniforms. Girls couldn't leave the house. Girls couldn't do any sports. There was so many restrictions. And trying to remember all those and trying to put them on the pages, it was painful, but maybe liberating in some ways. It's probably more than 50 times I have reread the book and edited it and rewritten it There are still times and pages that I cry when I read it. But it had to be done, and I had to relive that to remember them.
0: Would you like to read an excerpt from Daylight Forever?
1: Oh, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. So I'm going to read a little bit from one page. It's just two paragraphs from Chapter 5. It's called *Dirty*. And that's what Baha'is were referred to as being dirty. The revolutionaries, no longer busy overthrowing the Shah, turned their attention to religious minorities and specifically to the Baha'i community. Overnight, Baha'i professors are fired from their posts for corrupting the minds of the youth. Baha'i doctors become cab drivers and several thousand Baha'i students between the ages of 17 and 30 are expelled from universities. Khomeini makes a comment about cutting off a finger that has gangrene before it can infect the whole body. He calls Baha'is apostates, meaning they are not protected under Islamic law and can be killed and oppressed with impunity. Then he makes a religious law that protects Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians, but not the Baha'is. The new Iranian constitution guarantees justice and fairness to all and the freedom for all Iranians to practice their religion and be presented in the parliament as long as the religion is Islam christianity judaism or zoroastrian baha'is are deemed unclean no one can touch them and anything they touch also becomes unclean this of course makes it impossible for baha'is to hold jobs alongside the Muslims. baba kept his job baba is my dad at the water company for longer than some because he was usually out in the field, but even he was eventually fired. In rural areas, it was much worse. Baha'i's rights were taken away, their homes looted, their livestock and property seized. They were dragged from their homes by force and brought to mosques where they were compelled to accept Islam or lose everything and be killed. Some bowed to the pressure while others abandoned their homes to seek refuge with friends and relatives in larger cities. In schools, teachers told their classrooms that the Bahá'í children were unclean. Those children were made to sit in the back of the classroom, and the teachers instructed the other students that no one must touch them, talk to them or play with them. Within a year or two, no Baha'i children, except for those in big cities like Tehran, would even be allowed to attend school. So that just kind of further talks about what life was like for the Baha'is. You have to understand, the reason the Baha'is were not accepted in Iran is because of the teaching of the Baha'i faith. So if you don't mind, I am going to just quickly point out what are the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith and see if it makes sense for people to be persecuted for believing in these principles. So these are the the main and basic principles of the Baha'i faith, the oneness of mankind, universal peace, independent investigation of truth, The common foundation of all religions. The essential harmony of science and religion. Equality of rights of men and women. Elimination of all kinds of prejudice. Universal language. A spiritual solution to the economic problems. And universal education. So it makes you question and wonder. People ask me all the time when I talk to them about this, principles that why were my persecuted for believing it's a peaceful religion. But I can't explain that. So that was one passage I wanted to read. There is time I can read a little bit about when I wrote about the war sure so this is from chapter seven it's called choking the machine guns pummel the sky blasting away the fighter jets before they drop their bombs while sirens scream there is no such thing as getting used to it there is no getting used to war there is only the fear a darkness and close companion keeping the body in a constant state of blood pumping, heart racing, and anxiety. I grew accustomed to it, but only in a way that one gets used to an itchy wool sweater. It desynthesizes you, but then you find yourself unexplainably irritated and annoyed at every little thing. Fear is like that, but of course much worse. On the outside, I function normally. I go to school, I come home, and I do homework. I eat dinner, and I go to bed. I move through fear, but it was reshaping me on the inside, changing my brain, my every cell, and my every DNA, and on a level that I would not even fully realize until years later. So that's just kind of talking about how it was with the war i had one other passage if i can find it about the war okay well actually this talks about the restrictions that were placed on women it's also on chapter six spring of 1980 that's when we moved to our new home on the west side of tehran it was spring of 1980 women were taken to prison daily for wearing makeup and for refusing to wear the hijab they were beaten until they agreed to follow the law requiring them to cover their heads and remove their makeup if caught singing they were also beaten baba would tell me not to worry because none of us can escape our destiny i did not know what he meant was destiny a matter of choice or of chance I wanted to know if it was our destiny of four guards to come knocking on our door to drag us away so I could be prepared. We can never fully be prepared for anything, good or bad, he told me. We can only pray to be courageous in the face of whatever comes our way. So there, that's the part for like the the other restrictions that were placed on women. Sports were taken away, you had to be covered up, girls couldn't play outside anymore, or biking, skiing, all those sports were taken away. At school, we would have P.E., but we had to do it in our long cover-ups that we had to wear. I was going to read one page about the escape. So May 1988, Zahedan, which is the name of that city, the border city. Find something to hold on to, the smuggler says, before pinning us under a tarp in the truck bed, us, two families with young children, a 19-year-old man, and me, 15 years old, and on my own. We sit hunched around gasoline cans and water cans, sealed off from all delight. I clutch the tiny gold butterfly pendant around my neck, a gift from my mother, and whisper the prayer my father loves is there any remover of difficulties save god that old familiar cold sweat runs down my spine and i scream the silent scream that dies in my throat the engine revs and there is no turning back now the truck lurches forward something to hold on to he said i release the necklace and grab for something but there is nothing except other bodies bouncing and slamming against the hot metal. We ride like this for hours and in the darkness, I lose all sense of time and nearly my mind. Every bump bruises and I curse my long neck and a skinny body. I go over the smuggler's last words before pinning us down. We might never see him again. There might be multiple drivers. The truck might stop suddenly, but we must stay put, stay silent. Eventually, someone will return for us. The Pakistan border is just 370 miles away, but it could take us a week before we arrive because we have to weave back and forth through Afghanistan multiple times. If we are caught, we will all go to prison, and perhaps worse. I remember the way he looked me up and down slowly and said, You are very young and very pretty. A shiver snakes through my body despite the heat. It is worth it. It is worth it. I tell myself over and over again. I have made my choice. I begged for this moment. This is the moment I have been longing for. To stay in Iran was not a choice, but a submission to live at the mercy of sirens and bombs, a surrender to live in fear and darkness. The truck turns sharply and something hard jabs my rib. I wish of all things for a cushion. When I was younger, I wished on every star for my own spaceship. In the darkness of the truck, I am as close to the spaceship as I will ever get. This is my chance at freedom, at light. I am leaving my war-torn city and escaping certain death. My father's words resonate in my mind. Does this mean I am outrunning my destiny or running right into it? Only God knows.
0: Fortunately for you and your family, this ended up being a a happy ending from such a traumatic experience. But as you said at the beginning of this interview, only recently a certain event happened. Can you repeat for that, for the benefit of those who joined? Yes.
1: It feels like in the recent years, we have become more and more getting away from our sense of community, of feeling that we are connected, feeling that we are compassionate about humankind. Especially in the United States, it feels like there has been a lot of objection to immigrants and refugees. The situation at the Mexico border or around the globe, it kind of resonates this fear of the outsiders, the immigrants and the refugees, and a feeling that they're not welcomed, they are being disrespected, they're being referred to as criminals or taking advantage of our resources. Those combined with my daughter's personal experience at middle school in seventh grade when she was 12 years old and my daughter's protests. If you know people's stories, if you know their struggles, if they know the horrendous situations that they are in and what they're escaping, that they are willing to give up their home, the comfort of their home, their culture, their loved ones, their family, and walk away and continue to struggle in the new place with all the barriers that faces them, then we wouldn't judge them. And we would welcome them. Or at least we would respect them and have an open mind, and open heart, and extend an arm to help one another. Because after all, we're all connected. There are still several dozen Baha'is in prisons across Iran with long sentences without being given any legal rights to defend themselves. Just Three weeks ago, 50 Baha'i homes around Iran were broken into and their belongings, including all their computers and electronics and cell phones and laptops were taken away. They still have no way of defending themselves. I feel like partly responsible that we need to talk about the injustice in the Bahá'í teachings that I talked about, it does not oppose any teachings of any other religions, and yet they're being persecuted for their beliefs.
0: Well, Mavash, I want to thank you so much for sharing your incredible traumatic experience with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I hope you got as much out of that interview with Mavash Kajavi Harvey as I did. Author of the heart-wrenching memoir Daylight Forever. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Bahá'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org where you can call the number one 800 22 unite I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
3: On the path of delusion Confusion is a fact that'll mask the reunion Union of men, when will it be? See how desperately we need unity But who am I to unify? Nations and peoples, domes and the steeples We can be equal, yeah. if only we care So I put my hands yeah. in the air Cause this is my prayer. this is my prayer This is what I breathe To free the captures my air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe. sun don't shine, but when Baha'u'llah's words are spoken, I forget about my wings that are broken, and I can fly into the sky, no fear, no pain, with my hands held high, cause this is my air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe and this is what I believe, I want to guide the wayward, lead the hapless, awaken the heedless, and free.